Ciudad Chihuahua in November of 1913 just wouldn't fall. General Francisco Villa, better known to history as Pancho Villa, had taken other cities in the vast northern Mexico state in his effort to overthrow the military dictatorship of Victoriano Huerta. But the state capital was fiercely resisting his assaults. He was taking a lot of casualties. His former comrade Pascal Orozco and his private force of paramilitaries known as Colorados, named that after their blood red flag, were putting up a much stiffer fight than the federal troops, who were mostly conscripts, usually did, and Pancho was losing a lot of men. This wasn't working. But Villa had a plan. That night, he led 2,000 cavalrymen on a thundering sweep around Ciudad Chihuahua toward a copper foundry on the outskirts of the city. And there, his force intercepted a southbound coal train and captured a telegraph operator. Pancho put a pistol to the telegraph operator's head and gave him a message to relay back to Juarez on the U.S.-Mexican border. The operator reported that the train was derailed and the countryside was swarming with Villista rebels, and just as Villa had hoped, orders came down the line to repair the engine and roll back up the line to Juarez, checking in at each station along the way. The Villistas dumped the coal out of the train, loaded their horses, and climbed aboard. At each station, the telegraph operator, who had to have been sweating bullets staring down the big bore of Pancho Villa's 45 Bisley Colt, checked in and re- received his orders to proceed. In the early hours of November 15th, the train rolled the wrong way into the outskirts of Juarez. Villa gave his orders to his commanders, telling them that if it looked like the Federales were onto them to shoot the operator and run the train into the city. But nobody suspected a thing. Juarez was rolling at full roar, its casinos and cantinas packed with locals and American touristas, indulging their appetites for every kind of vice, from cards and dice to booze and horrors. So this Trojan horse train steamed right into the station and out jumped a thousand, a couple thousand, hard-bitten Villista revolutionaries. One contingent stormed off to take over the casinos where they expropriated a massive donation in silver for the cause. Another contingent peeled off to seize control of the police station, the federal garrison, and the international bridges. So this was really a very well-executed special operation. There was hardly any resistance. Orozco's paramilitaries just took off, fled the city in disarray, and when a few came back to try to make a counterattack, the Valistas drove them off. The police headquarters and the garrison held out for a little while, but ultimately they gave up as well. With minimal casualties, Pancho Villa had seized one of Chihuahua's biggest cities, scored a massive financial windfall, and had established a conduit for smuggled arms and legitimately purchased military and medical supplies from the United States. Villa was now the most powerful warlord in northern Mexico, and 
overnight had become an international superstar. Historian William Webster Johnson, in his History of the Revolution, titled Heroic Mexico, noted that Francisco Villa was a bandit. There might be some arguments whether he was a villain or a hero, a madman or a genius, but everyone agreed that he was a bandit. Pancho was the kind of man that legends gather around. During his lifetime, hundreds of corridos, which are Mexican narrative folk ballads, sang his story from his days as a bandit riding the Sierra to his pinnacle of power as the commander of the mightiest fighting force in the Western Hemisphere. And really for a little while, the Division del Norte was the most powerful military in the Western Hemisphere. I've had a long-standing fascination with Pancho Villa. That really caught fire when I was in my early 20s and I read Clifford Irving's fantastic novel, Tom Mix and Pancho Villa. Irving was most famous for writing a, a fake memoir of Howard Hughes, um, and uh, he certainly had a, a wild imagination, but um, his work on Pancho Villa um, was very well grounded in history, and it captured something really important about Villa. We tend to want clear heroes and villains in history, and Villa actually was both sometimes more one than the other, depending on his fortunes, and who was watching the dust of his horsemen out there on the horizon. To this day, he remains a figure of legend and of controversy. Was he a hero or a villain? A freedom fighter or a terrorist? The not-so-simple answer is yes. Just as there's no argument that Villa was abandoned, it's also beyond doubt that he was a highly capable frontier partisan. He honed the fundamental skills during his bandit days, becoming a deadly marksman and a breathtaking horseman. It was not for nothing that people called him the centaur of the north. Friedrich Katz, in his definitive biography, The Life and Times of Pancho Villa, wrote, Villa had the reputation of being one of Mexico's greatest gunfighters. For Villa, the gun was more important than eating or sleeping, a subordinate wrote about him. It was a part of his person indispensable to him wherever he was, even at social occasions. And one can say that it was only very rarely that he did not have a gun ready to be drawn or placed in his gun belt. Another contemporary observed that he is a remarkable horseman, sits on his horse with cowboy ease and grace, rides straight and stiff-legged Mexican style, and would only use a Mexican saddle. He loves his horse, is very considerate of his comfort, probably due to the fact that they have aided him in escaping from tight places so many times. He has often ridden over a hundred miles within twenty-four hours over the roughest mountain trails. As we've seen in the introductory episode and in the uh, episode about Pascal Orozco, the Mexican Revolution was a complex and very deadly brew of power lust, idealism, betrayal, and conspiracy. I'm calling this series the Mexican Game of Thrones for a reason, because that particular popular culture touchstone really accurately describes this very personal battle for power 
that consumed Mexico for a decade. All of its intrigue and treachery and its win-or-die ethos. No Game of Thrones was ever more violent and deadly. Virtually all of its major leaders, including, and here's a spoiler alert, Pancho Villa himself, died violently. All of the factions executed prisoners by firing squad and sometimes hanging, and civilians often suffered abuses and atrocities at the hands of federals or rebels or, each in turn, one after the other. However, it's important to note that uh, Villa's Division del Norte, his army in the early years of the revolution, was exceptionally disciplined. While he did confiscate land and money from those he considered enemies of the revolution, Villa forbade drunkenness and looting, and was especially careful to protect American property. He was, after all, receiving funds and arms from the North, and he didn't want to alienate the Americans. The general outfitted his military trains with medical cars, rolling hospitals with the latest equipment, and the best medical professionals. He took better care of his troops than any other commander in the Mexican Revolution. Villa genuinely was a friend of the poor, and he was especially committed to building schools and seeing to it that children in his area of operations received an education. He was almost obsessive about that. He believed all of his life in the critical importance of education, which he himself didn't really have, um, only a very limited education. Villa would degenerate morally under the pressures of defeat and the increasing savagery of what eventually became a civil war. But Villa, during the 1910 to 1914 revolutions, the initial Madero Revolution and then the effort to overthrow Huerta after Huerta staged a coup and and murdered Madero. In that period, Villa lived down his fearsome reputation as a bandit. But let's back up a bit and start from the beginning, more or less, at least what we know of it. At the start of the revolution in 1910, Francisco Villa was weaving along a very indistinct line between solid citizen and outlaw. He was operating a butcher shop in Chihuahua and supplying it with rustled beef. Legend has it that a young Doroteo Orango hit the outlaw trail after he killed a Hacendado's son who had raped his sister. He then took the nom de guerre of a famous bandit named Francisco Villa. And that legend may be true, or mostly true. There were plenty of reasons in that era for a young man of a poor family to turn bandit during this 30-year Porfiriato. As we've seen, Porfirio Diaz was a modernizer, and he did drag Mexico into the 19th and 20th centuries, but he wasn't gentle about it. In Diaz's Mexico, as we've seen, the rural poor had it very hard, and the only way to live a free life for a poor man was to live it outside the law. Life like that was usually brutal and short, and hombre was liable to catch a bullet from the bandits-turned-police of the rural guard, Diaz's 
feared Ruales, Villa did better than most. Sometimes he was a bandit. Sometimes he guarded ore shipments for American companies against bandits. By 1910, at age 32, he was semi-respectable and, and pretty much middle class, although he still maintained his contacts on the wrong side of the law. He was kind of a, a, a mafioso figure, a man to be reckoned with, and a man that you wanted on your side if political agitation turned to shooting. So he was identified by a moderista uh, politician named Abraham Gonzalez, who would become the, the moderista governor of Chihuahua. And uh, Gonzalez essentially recruited him as a revolutionary. And Villa would distinguish himself in the 1910 revolution as a gifted leader of irregular cavalry and a charismatic commander of a hodgepodge of revolutionary forces, really all volunteers who uh, stepped up to fight on behalf of Madero in 1910 and 1911. At that time, Villa was subordinate to Pascal Orozco, who, as we've discussed in the previous episode, was the major military figure of the 1910-11 revolution. And uh, Villa served sort of uncomfortably with Orozco in the key victory in that 1910-11 revolution at the Battle of Juarez. There was a a brief interim presidency, and then uh, Francisco Madero became president with the promise of reforms that would raise the stature of the poor in Mexican society. But uh, that hope and change thing, as always, is easier to promise than to deliver. And Madero was soon assailed by rebellions because he didn't deliver. And it was apparent that he didn't really want to deliver on major social reforms, particularly land distribution. Very weak effort to redistribute land, which is what many of the uh, the poorer folk in Mexico had joined the revolution to achieve. And so they were frustrated. Emilio, Emiliano Zapata in the south, in Morelos, was particularly frustrated and, and uh, announced himself in, in rebellion against the Madero government very quickly. In the north, Orozco rebelled too. And although he promulgated a program of reform, he was financed by old regime oligarchs who felt their power slipping away, even under the modest revolution of, of Madero. And... Uh, Villa, in rivalry with Orozco, stood by Madero, and soon he and Orozco were really at each other's throats. Once again, Villa proved himself to be a wily commander and a a vicious fighter. Um, Orozco's forces won early victories against Villa, but uh, Villa adapted tactically and uh, started scoring some lightning victories in a campaign that 
that ranged across the northern tier of Mexico. But it was really when the, the federal army was brought to bear against Orozco that, uh, that his rebellion was crushed. Madero had essentially kept Diaz's federal army intact. And a porfirista general named Victoriano Huerta led the effort to suppress the Orozco Rebellion. Huerta was a real bastard. He was ruthless and brutal, devious and mean, and had a bottomless capacity both for treachery and for Napoleon brandy, which he drank more or less constantly through the day without ever really showing any symptoms of being drunk. So he was a very high-functioning alcoholic and uh, a real mean personality. He held Madero in contempt, and he hated irregular troops, and Pancho Villa in particular. Now, as one might expect of a frontier partisan bandit, Pancho Villa was very fond of good horse flesh, and he com- commandeered a horse during one of his operations under Huerta's command. Huerta accused him of brigandage and had him dragged out of a hotel room, shaking and half delirious with fever, and stood him up against a wall to be executed. Via, as he was prone to do in moments of stress, broke into tears of rage and frustration, which was a humiliation that he would never forget. The intervention of one of Madero's brothers saved him from the firing squad, literally at the last moment. He was giving his watch away to the soldiers and preparing to to die. And Villa was, uh, instead of being shot, was carted off to prison in Mexico City. Now, prison in Mexico City for a political prisoner who was really in pretty good terms with the current regime was not horrible. Villa had a bed installed in his cell where he availed himself very frequently of Mexico's liberal and humane attitude towards conjugal visits. Legend has it that he learned to write his name and to read um, in prison, although um, some biographers think that that he did, in fact, know how to write his name uh, previous to this. Um, But he either read or someone read to him Don Quixote and the... uh, the swashbuckling stories of Alexander Dumas, the man in the Iron Mask, and the Three Musketeers. And pretty soon, uh, Villa did some swashbuckling of his own. Uh, a group of plotters tried to enlist him in a coup against Madero, uh, assuming that since Madero had imprisoned him that he'd be amenable to that. But Villa truly was loyal to Madero, as, as hapless as the little man was. And he not only declined, but escaped from prison and made his way to El Paso, where he sent word to his mentor, Abraham Gonzalez, who was governor of Chihuahua, that he stood ready to defend Madero and his revolution. And Madero and his revolution would soon need quite a bit of defending, or actually avenging, because Huerta in February of 1913 
had Madero and his vice president whacked and Huerta seized power. And some of Huerta's minions threw Gonzalez under the wheels of a moving train. So these two men that had believed in Pancho Villa and had elevated him from a semi-legal status of a, as a semi-bandit to a commander of revolutionary forces, Villa had lost these two men, and he was seriously, seriously pissed off. In March of 1913, with a handful of followers, he crossed the Rio Grande and announced that he was coming after Huerta. So it was game on. Now this has to be recognized as one of the greatest feats in, in military history. And it's hard to even really picture how he did it. A tremendous feat of recruitment and, uh, and personal charisma. In March of 1913, Pancho Villa crossed the U.S. border into Mexico, leading eight men. And he had plenty of bravado to go with it. He sent a telegram to the Huertista governor of Chihuahua, General Antonio Rabago. Knowing that the government you represent was preparing to extradite me, I decided to come here and save you the bother. Here I am in Mexico, resolved to make war upon the tyranny which you defend. Francisco Villa. Total bravado. Including himself, he's got nine men. But he didn't have nine men for long. He started gathering followers, first by the handful, then by the hundreds. And he raided haciendas and hijacked trains. On one train, he captured a shipment of 122 bars of silver, which went a long ways to purchasing arms. He also rustled cattle and used the proceeds from the sale of those cattle and that stolen silver to purchase arms in the United States. In a year's time, he had built and commanded the biggest army in the Western Hemisphere, which he called the Division del Norte. And he was storming into the Mexican heartland, moving from triumph to triumph and appearing to be invincible in his effort to overthrow the usurper Victoriano Huerta. The strategically critical objective of the war in the state of Chihuahua was, was control of the railway that ran from the U.S. border at El Paso down into the interior and eventually through Durango and into Mexico City. Villa employed night attacks and all kinds of misdirection to take the garrisons of the cities along that route. And as we noted at the top of the podcast here, abandoning the faltering siege of Ciudad Chihuahua for the sneak attack on Juarez was probably his greatest military feat. Really a, a special operations coup. And that left him in control of this vital border point of entry for supplies of all kinds of material of war. And it gained the notice of the United States and the international community. 
the brilliance of that operation and the new strength of his position also attracted other talent to his, his force. Villa's Division del Norte was made up of cowboys and miners and idealistic intellectuals and disgruntled federal officers like the brilliant Felipe Angeles, who commanded Villa's growing artillery contingent, which would be vital in the coming battles. Angeles was a noble soul. He had social democratic values and, and politics that would have fit right in with the European intelligentsia of the early 20th century. Uh, not a socialist per se, um, more of a, of a reformist, but uh, certainly leaning in that direction. V also attracted natural-born killers like his old compadre from the Sierra Madre bandit days, Tomas Urbina, and the man who would become Villa's bodyguard, head of his railroad operations, and his executioner, Rodolfo Fierro. Immediately after the capture of Juarez, Villa marched south to meet a substantial federal force at Tierra Blanca. In a very hard-fought and skillfully conducted battle, he routed the Federals, although, like Waterloo, it was a very near-run thing. The battle included some amazing Western movie action. Rudolfo Fierro rode down an escaping Federal train and jumped aboard. He shot the engineer and slammed on the brakes. The Villistas swarmed the train and slaughtered the, the federal troops. The victory at Tierra Blanca opened the way to the south, and finally Ciudad Chihuahua fell, and Villa was on the march to Mexico City. At this point, he would actually have more trouble with infighting on his own side than he would with the federal army, whose morale was cratering. Villa had placed himself under the civilian control of Venustiano Carranza, who was the self-proclaimed first chief of the constitutionalist faction that was trying to overthrow Huerta. It was a really bad relationship. Carranza was vain and aristocratic and sort of inscrutable. He always wore blue-tinted glasses, and, and you could never see his eyes. He held this rough bandit chieftain in disdain, even though this bandit chieftain had won the big battles that would throw Huerta out of power. He couldn't bear, Carranza couldn't bear, to watch the ascendancy of this crude peasant with an underslung jaw. And as Villa's star rose, Carranza began deliberately undermining his authority and impeding his military momentum. He did this by diverting coal trains away from Villa to stop his march on the federal bastion at the mountain silver mining town of Zacatecas. Everything in the Mexican Revolution in the north moved by railway. And at this point, Villa had numerous trains, and he had to have coal in order to operate. And so withholding coal from him was essentially stalling him out. 
Kronza encouraged Via's officers to mutiny. And uh, Via, again, reacting with emotion and, and rage, threatened to resign, threatened to shoot himself, and he also offered a mutual suicide pact with Carranza for the good of the revolution, that they should meet and, and shoot each other dead. Um, the bearded one declined to engage in that. Uh, thing is, Via probably meant it. He was a pretty mercurial man emotionally, and, uh, and he might well have been serious, but Carranza wasn't going to play. The first chief's ploy ultimately backfired because all of Villa's subordinates reaffirmed their loyalty and, you know, insisted that, uh, that Villa remain their, their chief and Carranza acquiesced to that and, and released coal shipments to him. And, uh, so the division del Norte was back on track, literally marching on Zacatecas for the most titanic battle of the first phase of the Mexican Revolution. General Anales deployed Villa's artillery to bombard two hilltop fortresses outside of Zacatecas, La Bufa and El Grillo. And with that artillery support, Villa's infantry stormed these strong points and took them. But it was in an absolute welter of blood. These were... were very, very stiff fights uh, going up against prepared positions on the high ground. And it was really Anhanes' uh, artillery fire that, that enabled this to happen. The slaughter had just begun. Once the Valises got the high ground, they rained down fire on the red tile roofs of Zacatecas. And the Federals began to flee. They blew up their own arsenal to keep it out of the hands of the revolutionaries and leveled a whole city block and killed about 300 civilians. The worst part of the killing occurred, as it so often does in battle, when, when the garrison was essentially routed. They had one way out of the city to the south, through a ravine, and Villa's troops circled around the city and lined this narrowing ravine and opened up a crossfire with Mausers and machine guns, and the trapped Federales just died in heaps. They were unable to fight, unable to flee, and surrender was the only option, at least for common soldiers. They had a choice. They could take a bullet, or they could serve under Villa and most of them made the obvious choice and joined the revolutionaries. Officers, on the other hand, didn't have a choice. They were hauled off to the Zacatecas Cemetery where firing squads overheated their Mauser barrels with wholesale executions. The Mexican Federal Army lost somewhere between 6,000 to 7,000 soldiers killed and captured, while the conquering Villistas suffered about 700 dead and about 1,500 wounded. The taking of Zacatecas was the greatest triumph of the Mexican Revolution. The battle broke Huerta 
and in July of 1914, he resigned and fled into exile. And, for a moment, the People's Revolution had triumphed, and then it all went to hell. Following the tragic pattern of so many 20th century revolutions, virtually all of them really, the triumph over tyranny almost immediately disintegrated into a welter of personal ambition, petty feuds, jockeying for power, and after a complicated round of conventions and political infighting, Carranza and his general Alvaro Obregón broke with Villa and also with Emiliano Zapata in the south, and the nation was teetering right on the, the brink of civil war. Carranza was in the capital, but knew he couldn't hold it, and so he actually fled the capital, and the Zapatistas moved in, and Villa marched into Mexico City in December of 1914 to meet Zapata's southern guerrilla army, and they established control of Mexico City and an interim government that stood in opposition to Carranza and Obregón. So at the end of 1914 and as 1915 broke, civil war loomed. And as so, is so often the case, it would be far more savage than the original revolutionary conflict. And we'll pick up that story in the second part of our biography of Pancho Villa. I'd like to thank our Patreon page supporters who make the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog possible. That's Rick Schwartfeger, David Rolson, Paul McNamee, Matthew Free Live Free, Christopher West, El Randolito, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Harry Kaiser, Ash, Bob Buckholtz, Larry Richardson, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, and Hawk and Horse. If you'd like to uh, join the brigade and throw down some clues to support uh, Frontier Partisans, the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. I will uh, wrap up the Mexican Revolution series with a list of, of books. I haven't really cited uh, a whole lot of sources yet. Um, there's a ton of great uh, great books, both uh, some wonderful nonfiction and, and some excellent novels that really capture the flavor of the, the era. And uh, I will, will rather than... Uh, doing show notes with the references for each episode. I'll do a wrap-up at the end of this series. In the next episode, we're going to see Pancho Villa snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and and fall from the pinnacle of power. And it was a, a long fall, but he was never really entirely out of the fight. So we'll carry 
him through uh, till 1920 when he ultimately uh, surrendered to federal forces and uh, established himself in a hacienda in Durango called Canateo. And then uh, we'll do one more independent episode on his assassination. Uh, we're coming up on July 20th on the 100th anniversary of that event, which is quite a, uh, a fascinating caper in its own right. So uh, we've got a couple more episodes with, uh, with Pancho Villa, and then uh, I'm going to close out the Mexican Game of Thrones with uh, a multi-parter on Emiliano Zapata. So still a lot of Mexican Revolution tales to tell, and we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>